it feels like we always sort of have to begin on kind of a down note just because of things happening in the world and it always feels, it, it would feel disingenuous and a little bit tone deaf to not at all acknowledge like all, all of the things that are, that are plaguing us and that are, I mean, that, that are kind of weighing on us at one level or another. And we've, we've tried to, to remain in the conversation as best we can about the, the current kind of outcry for racial justice in, uh, in our country. And so it, it would feel wrong to not mention the fact that even after three weeks of sustained, almost like nonstop protest over violence um, from police onto specifically black and brown citizens, that this week Rayshard Brooks was killed by a police officer in Atlanta. And so um, these, these are the kinds of stories we continue to hear, even after all of, the, all of the tension and all of the outcry, these kinds of things are continuing to happen. And so uh, that needed, I felt like that needed to be named. Rayshard Brooks was a dad. He had three young daughters um, and they are without him today. And that's a tragedy. It, it is something worth grieving. And if, if that is a story that has weighed on you this week, along with all the other things that are continuing to weigh on us, then yeah, we're, we're all joining in that cry at one level or another. Also, it felt like, a, um, it, felt, it feels necessary to sort of continue to remind ourselves, like even in the midst of all these things, there is still a pandemic going on. And that as of this morning, according to the New York Times, over 119,000 people have died in the U.S. Uh, because of COVID-19. And to, to kind of put that in perspective, less than 117,000 people died in World War, or U.S. citizens died in, during World War I or in World War I. So this, this has killed more Americans than World War I did. And that is, I realize that's heavy. It's not necessarily the first thing we wanted to hear uh, upon tuning into a church service. But again, we're, we, we don't live in a vacuum. And we're, as a church, one of the things that we, we try and do is be aware of and respond to and lament with the cry. And there, there are lots of cries right now. So we wanted to acknowledge that, we wanted to, to name it, we, and we wanted to grieve it. So sorry to, to always feel like we're kind of starting a low place, but, um, but I think that's, that's sort of where we find ourselves right now. And it, again, it would have felt deeply just disingenuous for me to just like launch into like, let me tell you a hilarious story about my kids or, or something like that, um, even though, Clearly, there's lots of stories to be told. So why don't I pray for us, and then we'll, uh, we'll get going, and we'll continue in our Genesis series. So let's pray. God, we, uh, we, we gather once again in this online space, and we, we bring to you the grief and the trauma of the family of Rayshard Brooks, uh, along with the continued grief and trauma of the people who were in the lives of George Floyd and Breonna Taylor and Ahmaud Arbery and so many others whose names we, we may never know. Uh, that on, on a Father's Day, there are, there are three girls, three small children in Atlanta who are without their father today. And it didn't have to be this way. And we, we grieve that, we lament it. We ask for some amount of justice. We ask for some amount of peace in the midst of all of this. And for those of us who are grieved over uh, the continuing uh, rise in the death count uh, as, as it relates to this, this virus. We pray for, again, some amount of peace or grace for the loved ones who have been left behind and for those who are afraid, for those of us who are disoriented, for those of us who have been working uh, like we can't stop just to try and keep everything together in the midst of everything. Um, we pray, again, we pray for grace, we pray for peace. And in whatever state or um, 
mental place we find ourselves. May we, at the end of this online service, may we find ourselves with more grace and peace than we had when we first logged on. In Jesus' name, amen. All right. So we're, we're going to be, I want to invite you to turn to the book of Genesis, chapter 15. We're going to shift pretty hard into to this next thing. So I did want to just um, move, move right into what we're actually, the, the sermon. Uh, I, I do want to say real quickly, this, I wanted to offer kind of a, a mild trigger warning a little bit. As I was working through this sermon this week, it occurred to me that this is a story that does have some violence, against, like some pretty gruesome violence against animals. So if, that's, if that is something that you are right now not okay to, to hear about, then you, know, you can come back to this later if you want to. So I did want to just offer that up just in case that, it, that might be particularly upsetting to you. But you know, we're reading through the book of Genesis and there's some pretty messed up stories in the book of Genesis. So this isn't even one of those. It's, it's not even one of the messed up stories. It's just a story. But it happens to also involve some violence against animals. So uh, that's, I just wanted to get that out of the way before we get going. Um, this season, I don't think anybody who knows me will be surprised to hear that this, this particular season, the last three months and counting, have been particularly challenging specifically for me. I've been having a hard time feeling any sense of motivation or um, just the, the desire to, to make new plans and have new ideas. It's just, it, it's just not there. And um, it's, it's, been, it's been a real struggle with the feeling that I, I feel a little bit useless and I'm not used to that. I, I have a, this is, um, by the way, this is not, um, I mean, it's the, the pandemic and everything like that might have like set, set this off, but I am an Enneagram three, which anybody who knows the Enneagram knows that that means like I am the person who needs to constantly be achieving things and I need to have new plans and new things to achieve, or I might, um, you know, go a little crazy. So the eternal struggle of the Enneagram 3 is if there's nothing to plan and there's nothing new to create and, and nobody here to pat you on the back for doing it, or not nobody, but like, you know, just the, the, um, the normal situation of like gathering in a group of people every week and being in that space, um, there, there, is, there is something that goes missing for me in, in situations where we have to spend this amount of time, you know, outside of that circumstance. And I've been thinking a lot about, you know, this church and that we spent so much time and poured so much of ourselves into, into building. And, like, I feel like we, we had just celebrated our sixth anniversary as a church. In fact, today, Father's Day five years ago was the first day, was our first Sunday in the building that is currently, right now as we speak, sitting completely, uh, like, deserted because nobody's there. And... Um, and I, I've been spending a lot of time thinking about like all the time and all the energy and all the things that we poured into this. How many, not just me and Caroline, but like it, so many of you who are watching or listening right now were part of that. And I, I was really, it's so like right as we were hitting our, our six year anniversary, there was this part of me that thought like, this is good. Like this, like I feel like we're really kind of settling into who we're trying to be. In fact, at the beginning of the year, the goal I set was we need to have more gatherings. Like we need to have like more meals and, and events where people can all be in the building at the same time. And then this happened and completely threw everything off course. So, so we spent so much time doing that, and now it, it feels more fragile and it feels different. It feels like a lot of a lot of the progress that we had made is like slipping through my fingers a little bit. Um, even though I know that's not always the case, it just sort of Emotionally, that's kind of where I'm at. Um, I used to write every day. This, that was a, a thing I genuinely enjoyed doing. I, um, full confession, I, I'm, maybe I'm being a little bit too vulnerable right now, but I haven't written like a new sentence in months that didn't have to do with one of these sermons. I just, and it's just, I have no, no, no new things to say. I have nothing to say, or I feel like, outside of just the sermons that we're doing every week. Um, 
And again, like for an Enneagram 3, all of this kind of swirls around it and it plagues, I, I, I am plagued by the question, does my presence in this world matter? And I'm not telling you this so that you'll feel like bad for me or embarrassed for me maybe even a little bit, but just to sort of acknowledge that maybe there are lots of us who are in that space and we're sort of struggling with like, well, what do, what do we do? And who, what kinds of things can I contribute to make me feel like my presence here matters? And that's, a, that's kind of a, a broken, dark sort of place to be. There have also, by the way, been times in my life when I felt uneasy everywhere. Like it didn't take a pandemic to make me feel uncomfortable. <laughs> I uh, like to, to be in certain situations and feel just a little bit out of place or a little bit um, not seen or not just understood or um, kind of even uncomfortable in my own skin. The, the church I worked at right before we started Collective, I remember my last day there. Uh, what I, I didn't realize when I got there that it was going to be my last day, but it was my last day. And the last thing that my boss of almost five years, the last thing he said to me before we both left the building, me permanently, the last thing he said to me was, you know, Rob, you never really fit in here. And I remember hearing that and at first thinking, well, at first I had a weird reaction to it, but later on as I was sort of remembering that he said that and, and thinking through it, I kind of had this sense of like, oh no, no, yeah, he's right. I never felt comfortable. I never felt at home. And, and so there's on the one hand, there is this, this tension I think that a lot of us feel of like what of what use am I being am I um, does my presence in this on this planet have any sort of consequence or weight to it at all and then there's this other thing of like I just constantly just feeling uneasy and uncomfortable in your own skin no matter where you are and there are these two kind of struggles that I think are are pretty deeply embedded in the human experience and not all of us I think probably get probably struggle with each like both of these things at equal levels but but I think these are common things that people struggle with and maybe maybe this current like the last three months has really kind of brought some of that stuff to the surface for you I know it has for me um, I suspect that there are at least a few other folks who are watching or listening that can relate to at least one of those two feelings it's get, uh, beginning to thunder. I hope my power doesn't go out. That happened a couple of days ago. So if this whole thing just like shuts off, it means the power in my house went out. Um, so, because apparently the internet is connected to that. So if that goes down, everything goes down. Um, so maybe I should talk faster, just in case. Uh, anyway, I suspect there's, a, there's lots of people who, who possibly feel this way, who can relate to, to one of these feelings. Th these are not new feelings. We didn't invent these emotions in the modern age. Uh, they, they've always been with us. So I want to invite you to turn to, again, uh, I mentioned Genesis 15. Did I say Happy Father's Day when we started this? I did? I can't remember. Um, as I, before, like, maybe you're saying, like, he didn't, he didn't say Happy Father's Day. This whole thing doesn't count. Happy Father's Day? I did. I did say Happy Father's Day before. Okay. <laughs> we're, we're fine. This is fine. So Happy Father's Day again. Out of nowhere, there was like a commercial break for Father's Day. <laughs> I don't know. Um, okay, so anyway, we're looking at Genesis 15. Just keep it going, keep it going. It's worse than the train. So Genesis 15 is where we're at. Now, uh, a little bit of review. We've, we've been in Genesis. I mean, it's hard to even say how long it is we've been in Genesis because we got through Genesis 13 and then we took like a, you know, three-month break and now we're back in Genesis. So Genesis, beginning in Genesis 12, the cha chapter 12, we are introduced to a guy named Abram. And we're told at the very beginning of the story of Abram, before any action takes place, we're told that God says to Abram, you will be a blessing to all other people. You, you will go into the world and you will become a person who generates good things for other people. You, you will make people glad that they know you. You will be a blessing to all other nations. That was the initial, so like that's good. We're getting a good opening word on who Abraham is or Abram at this point is. 
And then immediately after that, he does this thing that's pretty horrific, where he goes into a foreign country and it looks like maybe uh, someone with power is interested in his wife. And so he's like, just tell him you're my sister. We can just do that. And, and that story actually happens like three times. So, so we, there's a little bit of, like, we don't really know how to feel exactly about Abraham. And then last week, we, we looked at the story where he basically does like a Liam Neeson movie because he come, like somebody comes to him, like there's a war going on and we need your help because your nephew has been, has been captured as a prisoner of war. And so Abraham goes and he, he does this thing and then he comes back from this battle victorious and he's blessed by a priest who we never see again named Melchizedek. And now in Genesis 15, we're, we're seeing Abraham or Abram go back into an ongoing conversation with God. So in Genesis 15, just beginning in verse one, it says, after this, and this is immediately after the, the blessing from Melchizedek. It said, after this, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Do not be afraid, Abram. I am your shield, your very great reward. So this is an interesting way to start, because like, what has just happened? If you were following along from Genesis 14 into Genesis 15, what's the last thing that happened? Uh, like, I get, well, the last thing that happened was that he received a blessing. But right before that, there was a giant war that broke out. And according to archaeological studies, like more modern archaeological studies, this massive war wiped out like several pretty developed civilizations for their time. So the world at this time is really unstable. There is, there's tons and tons of war. There's food insecurity everywhere. Depending on where you are and who you know, you could be in danger at any given moment. This is not a stable place in the ancient Near East. And so when God speaks to Abraham, in Genesis 15, God says, "Don't he, the, the whole thing starts with, don't be afraid. And don't, it feels like a tall order, especially right after Genesis 14, where this giant war has just been resolved. So, so the idea of don't be afraid, does this mean like, oh, don't worry, like war is not going to affect you anymore and famine won't affect you anymore. We know that's not the case because that's, that's, that's not a realistic way to live in the ancient Near East. So what does this mean? So do not be afraid is connected to the idea of security, right? There, there is some sense of peace that Abraham is, is offered and it comes in the form of don't be afraid. So in this time, the concept of security was not just about feeling safe from physical danger or having enough food to get you through the next dry season. That's not what security is. It, like when, when you think security, top of mind in the ancient Near East, it was related to like, will my family line continue? So it's about, the, it's, it's connected to the knowledge that your name and your story will live beyond you. That, there, that, that your life is not inconsequential because you're, like, the, the echoes of your life will continue throughout the generations. And the idea here is like that happens with kids. And, um, so that's kind of that's kind of where this whole thing is beginning, because again, when God says don't be afraid, it's not just like there's no more war; it's your story will continue. There's there's a sense of security that's, that's built into this. The problem is Abraham understands one little problem with that is he doesn't have any male heirs to carry on his name. So in Genesis 15, beginning of verse two, it says, "But Abram said, Sovereign Lord, what can you give me since I remain childless?" And the one who will inherit my estate is Eliezer of Damascus. And Abraham said, you have given me no children, so a servant in my household will be, will be my heir. In other words, like you tell me not to be afraid, but the thing that I'm most afraid of is that my story will end when I'm gone. And that, that is, he's articulating this particular sense of insecurity in this moment. And then in verse four, it says, then the, world, then the word of the Lord came to him. This man will not be your heir, meaning the servant in his household will not be your heir, but a son who is your own flesh and blood will be your heir. He took him outside and said, look up at the sky and count the stars, if indeed you can count them. Then he said to him, so shall your offspring be. So Abraham believed the Lord and he credited it to him as righteousness. So 
There are two ideas here, like right at the outset of this interaction between God and Abraham. And the two ideas that are connected here are, don't be afraid and your story will continue. You will have numerous descendants is, is what is being said here. So the, the two mirroring ideas or the two kind of conjoined twin ideas here are, don't be afraid and your story will continue. So then in verse seven, it says, he, God also said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out of Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to take possession of it. But Abraham, or Abram, said, Sovereign Lord, how can I know that I will gain possession of it? So the Lord said to him, Bring me a heifer, a goat, and a ram, each three years old, along with a dove and a young pigeon. Totally normal grocery list. So God says to Abraham, Abraham says, How am I supposed to know that, how am I supposed to have any sort of confidence that what you're telling me is true? And God's response is, Go get some, go get some animals and bring them back here. Um, then in verse 10, it says, Abraham brought all these to him, cut them into two, which by the way, he's not instructed to do that. Somehow he just knows what to do here. It says, he cut them into two and arranged the halves opposite each other. The birds, however, he did not cut in half. Good detail to know. Then the birds of prey came down on the carcasses, but Abraham drove them away. So this is, first of all, it's important to understand what we're, what we're looking at here. This is not animal sacrifice. There are animal sacrifices that we see in the scriptures. This is not that. This is something different. This is what's known as a covenant. In Hebrew, it's the word berit. And a covenant is the, like there's an agreement, there's a deal, there's a promise that's about to be made. It's like signing a contract. And um, it was connected to the knowledge. I'm sorry. So this covenant is being struck. And again, by the way, notice Abraham knows exactly what to do. All God says in the story is go get some animals. And then Abraham comes back and without having to be told to, cuts the animals in half, kills them, cuts them in half. And he knows exactly what to do. Why? Because this is a normal thing. Believe it or not, this is a totally normal thing that people would do in the ancient Near East when they were trying to enter into a binding agreement. This is like contractual, like this, this is a, a legally binding way. This is before we had like notaries and stuff. Like this is an ancient Near East version of being, having something notarized. Like we're just gonna cut some animals in half and we're gonna make, it, make a deal. So. Uh, in the ancient Near East, this type of covenant would have been more common. The, probably the most common time you would have seen this kind of covenant dealt with is when a king wanted to bestow land on an individual or a subject as a reward for loyal service. So let's say you're a king in this region and you have a servant who has done something to earn your favor. And so you go to the servant and you say, I'm going to give you a specific portion of land. I can't give it to you yet because it's not ready. Somebody else has it occupied. I'm using it for something, but in the future, at some point, I will give you this land. And as a, as a way to pledge the land to that, this person, they would do exactly this ritual. They would take certain types of animals, cut them in half, and then the agreeing parties would literally walk between the halves of the animals as a way of saying, this is, this, I take this very, very seriously. Um, in fact, there are other documents from this time that articulate this exact kind of covenant. There's, there are other, in, outside of the Bible, there's another document that says, it's articulating like a king or a leader saying, as this, as this calf is cut up, thus the king and his nobles shall be cut up. So the fate of the animal is projected onto the person who enters into the agreement. So the idea here is, if I break this agreement, may I end up like these animal pieces. It's very graphic. Again, this is, uh, this is how people would strike a contract before there were notaries. This is, this is the ancient Near Eastern version of a pinky promise. It's very binding. So, um, so anyway, so we, we, we see the, the animal halves being separated, um, which again, totally normal in this time. And then in verse 17, it said, 
Um, wait, is that where I am? No, it's not. I'm in verse 12. So it says, As the sun was setting, Abram fell into a deep sleep, and a thick and dreadful darkness came over him. Then the Lord said to him, Know for certain that for 400 years your descendants will be strangers in a country, not their own, and they will be enslaved and mistreated there. So this is a projection into what will occur in the book of Exodus. So it says in verse 14, it says, But I will punish the nation they serve as slaves, and afterward they will come out with great possessions. You, however, will go to your ancestors in peace and be buried at a good old age. In the fourth generation, your descendants will come back here, for the sin of the Amorites has not reached its full measure. So, the, buried inside of this paragraph, you have some pretty interesting phrases. So at first, we hear your descendants will have an experience. So to promise that Abraham that his descendants will have experiences, he's promising Abram that he will have descendants. So there is a future projection into this statement. But also, Abram is told, you will join your ancestors which means you are also are part of a story. You came from somewhere. Someone, like you weren't born out of a vacuum. There's a story that got you to this place in the first place. So it's this sort of acknowledgement of you didn't start this story and you will not live to see the end of this story and the story will continue beyond you. So this is a big deal, again, in this part of the world at this time because what's being said here is your life is not without consequence. Your life will continue to have echoes long after you are gone, just like the lives of the people who came before you have continued to have echoes after they've been gone. So there's this connection between ancestors and descendants, future generations. So there's, he's connecting, so in the story, God is connecting Abraham's current situation with a larger story that is being told. Then in verse 17, it says, when the, when the sun had set, and darkness had fallen, a smoking firepot with blazing torch appeared and passed between the pieces, which again, for us, this is like, that's pretty weird. Here's the thing though, in the scriptures, specifically in the Hebrew scriptures, what we call the Old Testament, there are several points throughout the scriptures where God is specifically de de described as a presence of fire, like fireball and smoke. So in fact, you see it again in the book of Exodus, you see it again in the book of, I think, Jeremiah or Isaiah, you see it again in the book of Zechariah. So anybody reading, like later generations who are reading this or hearing these stories, when they hear the pieces were separated and smoke and fire passed through the pieces, to that group of people, that's, that's an instant connection. That is, oh, God is in this place and God is passing through the pieces to, to strike this agreement. So they're, they're meant to symbol some sort of divine presence in the story. So, there are two dimensions. There's this covenant that's being struck. There's this agreement that's being in, entered into. And there are two basic dimensions to the agreement. The first dimension is to Abraham, uh, God saying, your story will continue. The story that you're a part of doesn't die when you die. Your story will go on way before you. Your life is way more significant than just you. So that's the first dimension of this. The second dimension of it is you will have space to thrive in peace. A big part of this whole thing is a promise that, um, that Abraham will receive some kind of like land or his descendants will have land, which is also a really big deal. The two things that are most valuable in this part of the world at this time are um, natural born heirs in your household or, and land, property, a space to be. And so this promise is actually very, very significant because what's being said here is your descendants will continue to tell your story and they will have a space where they will be at peace. They will, they, they will go through a time where they live in a space that does not want them and does not care about them, but eventually they will have peace and they will be in a space that they can call their own. So this is what, I, when, I, when I was talking about before, uh, like there are these common struggles that, that maybe a lot of us are feeling right now. 
and, and the idea of well, these are not new struggles. These, these have been around for a really, really long time. We see these struggles show up with Abraham right at the beginning of Genesis 15. What are the struggles? It is one, we are all on a search. Yeah, identity. We're all on a search for identity, but also we are all looking for peace. The covenant that's being struck here, the deal that's being made, the promise that's being made, has to do with identity and peace. Abraham is looking to make sure his identity is not just wiped off the face of the earth the minute he's no longer around. That his identity is something bigger than just his, like, the very present moment that he's in right now. There's a bigger story being told. But also, there is a sense of like, how, how is anybody going to be at peace when they have no space to just be? So embedded in this are these two postures or these two approaches. I'm trying to figure out what it means to be me in this world and what it means to see myself as someone with some kind of inherent value that my, my existence does matter to somebody, but also I'm looking for a way to sort of feel at home in the world, to feel comfortable in my own skin. So we're all on a search for identity and we're all looking for some kind of peace. This is why Abraham is talking to God in the story. Abraham is asking questions about who am I and will I have peace? Will I have descendants and will I be able to live with peace? So, so let's, let's take a look at what, what's going on right now. So again, over the past three, four weeks, there have been pretty much nonstop protests in, in the US as it relates to police violence and, um, and, and the struggle of white supremacy that's sort of built into the whole structure. So what is, what is at the root of the protests? What, when, people, when people show up to a protest and they have their signs and, and, and people have like someone with a bullhorn or, or a microphone will say something, what is at the root of the lament or the complaint? Why, why, why do people say that they're protesting? Because they're saying, or specifically, black and brown citizens in the United States are saying, we feel unsafe. We feel like our lives and our deaths are unimportant in the eyes of our white neighbors and the people who hold most of the power. The protests are a way of saying, we, we feel like our identity as it relates to the society that we live in is tentative and not always fully acknowledged and our ability to live in peace is non-existent. When, when someone can be asleep in their own home and someone with a badge and a gun can break in and kill them and not even be arrested for it, yeah, no wonder people don't feel at peace. You know what I mean? So at, at the core of, of the protest, it's the same question that Abraham is asking, which is, does anybody acknowledge, does anybody care about my story? And is there any way that I can have some amount of peace in this world? The reason, um, and I, I've known, I've had several conversations over the past several years with you know, white people. And one of, the, one of the things that I've heard white people say is that they're upset by the phrase Black Lives Matter because they're afraid that what that does is that, um, that, de or that devalues their own lives as if all things were equal all the time. And to say Black Lives Matter is to sort of like put people above other people. But that's not what this is. The reason we, we have people who feel the need to continue to insist that black lives matter. The reason you have so many um, black people in the United States saying and insisting black lives matter isn't because they're saying like we matter more than everybody else. What they're saying is we feel like nobody in this country believes that our lives matter. 
Um, it's because we, have a, we, we come from a long history in this country in which black life has not mattered in the eyes of people setting policy, in the eyes of, of lots and lots of the people who have been given the power to enforce the law. So the phrase black lives matter is a lament. It's a cry. It's a way of saying we feel that our identity is not validated and we never ever feel at peace. Even when we're alone, asleep in our own homes, we still can't have peace. So this is a phrase that has, has become a very useful cry because, because it's, it's, it's somebody saying, why do I feel expendable in a place where I should be at home? Um, in fact, there is a, I, I don't know, I don't know if everybody out there is an, a Mavis Staples fan. I love Mavis Staples. Mavis Staples, having a hard time with my words. Um, Mavis Staples in 2017 released an album. Um, if you don't know who Mavis Staples is, she is, um, a, a black soul singer. She's been around for a while, but she released a relatively new album in 2017. And the name of the album was If All I Was Was Black. And on the album, there is a song called Build a Bridge. And there's a phrase in the, one of the verses in the song really struck me when I first listened to it. And the verse says, when I say my life matters, you can say yours does too, but I bet you never had to remind anyone to look at it from your point of view. What is she saying? She is saying, I'm tired of needing to remind people of my own humanity. I am tired of my identity being challenged and I'm tired of living without peace. So when God says to Abram, your story will matter and your descendants will have space where they can feel at peace, it's a really big deal. And again, this is not a new, like when we have people saying, I feel like my life doesn't matter as much as, as it should in this place. But yeah, that's a, that's a very old struggle. Genesis 15 shows us that struggle right off the bat. So, um, oh, by the way, something that's different about this story, the story of Abraham like cutting the pieces and, and God passing through, the thing that, that contrasts, contrasts this story with all the other stories from its day is that in this particular story in Genesis, God passes through the animal pieces alone. This is not a covenant in which a person is making a pledge to God or a king is making a pledge to a servant. This is a covenant in which the divine is, is offering something, is making some sort of pledge or promise to a human being. Um, in, in fact, God is making the pledge on behalf of them both. There's a Jewish theologian named Nahum Sarna who, says, who writes that this is the first time in religious history that God becomes the sole contracting party. That's a really big deal. Uh, and by the way, like later on, there will be things like, so Abraham is not asked to do anything in this particular situation other than to provide the animals. But later on, there, there, will, be, um, there will be some covenantal things that they have to do, specifically circumcision. And we'll get to that eventually, get excited. But, um, but right, right here in this moment, only God is the contracting party. Uh, by the way, oh, again, because the, the image here is if, if, if someone passes through the animal pieces, what they're saying is, if I break my promise, may I become like these divided animals. So later on, this is just an aside, but I think it's really interesting. Later on in the book of Deuteronomy, we see the, what is often referred to, or what is often believed to be the most sacred prayer in all of Jewish theology. And it's called the Shema. In fact, we know, we know that Jesus prayed the Shema. How does the Shema begin? It begins, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Now to us, we read this in English and we think like, I don't know what that means. But 
to the people who know the story of Abraham and know the story of the divided animals. And then when God makes a promise, God says, if I break my promise, I will be like these divided animals, to have a prayer later in which people continue to affirm that God is one, what, what is that saying? It is saying that God is undivided. That God has, to say that God is one is to say, is like singular, one, is a way of saying God continues to hold tight to this covenant that was struck. God is not divided like these animal pieces. God is one. This is profound. So all of that is going on. And um, sorry, I have to turn my note page real quick. Um, and again, like later on, Abraham is going to have to do his own sort of ritual to signify his participation and his descendants' participation in this covenant. But here, he's simply receiving a promise. He's doing nothing, again, other than providing the animal pieces. So at its core, this is a story about identity and a story about peace. This is a story about seeing yourself as a person with value and seeking out spaces and moments where you can receive some amount of peace in this world. This is still at the heart of our story. Look at Romans chapter 8. In Romans chapter 8, this is thousands of years later, you've got this guy named Paul, who we've become very familiar with. And in Romans 8, Paul is writing to a church in the city of Rome. And in eight, chapter 8, verse 35, Paul writes this. Uh, Paul writes, Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or, or the sword? As it is written, for your sake, we, all, we face death all day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors throughout, through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life nor angels nor demons, neither present nor, nor the future nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anyone else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. This is, sounds like big churchy language, but what's being said here is this is really strong language that insists you are loved and there is nothing in the world that can change the fact that you are loved. Abram's asking questions about identity and peace and how do I know I'm not alone in this world? How do I know that there is something bigger that I'm participating in? And then Paul writes this letter and he says, you are loved and nothing can separate you from this love. There is, there is a reconnection to a sacred identity that Paul is drawing upon. This is a very old story about sacred identity. Who are we? Who were we meant to be? These are old questions. So Abraham's struggle is, I don't want to be forgotten. And the response from God is, you won't be. You couldn't be. Abram doesn't have to do anything. In the story, God does all the work, and the message is, you are loved, and you will not be forgotten. And that, that's what Paul seems to be saying, too. Uh, jump over to Matthew chapter 11. There's this thing that Jesus says in Matthew 11, verse 28. Jesus says, Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Jesus is talking about peace. Yeah, things are hard. And there is this constant daily struggle that just sort of seems to be part of life. And Jesus says, come to me if you're weary and you can find rest. You can find peace. Paul talks about identity. Jesus talks about peace. Take a look at John 16. In John chapter 16, verse 32. Um, okay, so yeah, verse 32, it says, this is Jesus speaking. It says, a time is coming, and in fact has come, when you will be scattered, each of you to your own home, which sounds familiar. You will leave me all alone, yet I am not alone, for my Father is with me. I have told you these things, so that in me you may have peace. In this world you will have trouble, but take heart, I have overcome 
the world. There is this sort of assurance here of, yeah, things are going to get hard. In this world, you will have trouble. It's not a question of if, it's a question of when and how much. You will have trouble. And then Jesus continues to say, but, but I'm still here to offer some amount of peace. I'm here to give you some kind of sense that it's bigger than just you and that you don't have to live in this like tense, angst-filled, um, uncomfortable-in-your-own-skin kind of way. So the struggle, in, the struggle, according to Jesus, is part of life. And in some ways, it's just trouble often... Or, um, in some ways, trouble often reminds me that we're alive. It's, it's this way of saying, like, yeah, the, the game isn't over yet. You still, you still have things that you have to um, participate in. You, you still have a life that you're invited to live, even though it sometimes doesn't seem like it. And Jesus says, I'm here to give you peace. Let's look at one more passage in Mark chapter 14. In Mark 14, this is the, the passage where we see the um, communion, what we call communion, Passover, the Lord's Supper, whatever you want to call it, Eucharist. So in uh, chapter 14, uh, beginning in verse 22, they've been uh, having a Passover meal, and it says Jesus and his followers. And it says, while they were eating, Jesus took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to, to his disciples, saying, take, this is my body. Then he, Jesus, took, took a cup, and when he, when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, and they all drank from it. This is the blood, this is my blood of the covenant, of the barit, which is poured out for many. He said to them, truly I tell you, I will not drink again from the fruit of the vine until the day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. So Jesus says, this is my, this is my body, and this is my blood. My body has been broken, and my blood has been poured out, and that's a part of some amount of covenant. What is Jesus describing? Jesus is describing a situation in which he physically, his, where Jesus' body is broken in the name of a covenant. What do we see in Genesis 15? We see animal bodies being broken in the name of a covenant. Jesus is echoing some of this old language and some of these old stories. And we're beginning to see like, oh, the whole thing has been about reminding us that we are loved and our identity matters more than we think it does and that we are invited to live in some amount of peace. We're, we are invited into a story that is about grace and peace and becoming who we were always meant to be. So maybe you're, struggle to find, or maybe you're struggling to find yourself in a larger story, and maybe you have this nagging fear that you don't matter or that you're not loved. And my hope is that you know that you do matter and you are loved, that your, your presence on this planet is not insignificant. Your story matters, and it matters so much more than you think it does. You are loved. So maybe, maybe you struggle with believing that, especially right now for all kinds of reasons. Or maybe you spend most of your waking hours feeling uneasy or just uncomfortable in your own home or even in your own skin. And you, you sort of have this sense of there is no peace. Like I, I have no connection with any amount of peace. I know what that feels like. I, I feel like that a lot sometimes. But what we've continued to find in the scriptures and these stories is a God who says, no, your story matters and you are invited into a story that at its root offers peace. Abraham says, how am I gonna, how can I live in a world and not be afraid when there's so many reasons to be afraid? How am I gonna live in a world where I don't know for sure that my story will matter and I don't have any space where I can be at peace. And God says, bring me some animals because I'm going to remind you that your story does matter and that you can have peace. So may you find yourself inhabiting a larger story. 
And may you find peace in your own skin. May you remember that you are loved, you are not forgotten, and that you are, who you were meant to be is a good thing. Let me pray for us. God, may we find ourselves tuning back into this insistence that we matter, that our stories are not without significance. May we find that we are participating in something so much larger than ourselves. And for those of us who feel uneasy, for those of us who lie awake at night, thinking through all the worst case scenarios, being so consumed and wrapped up, for me as much as anybody, may we find peace. May, may, may we find that we can, at least for a few minutes every day, remind ourselves that we are loved, that we are not forgotten, and that we are invited into a story that at its root is about grace and peace. May we breathe deeply. May we try our best to be fully present. And may we find that we are participating in something so much bigger than ourselves. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.